God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can prepare to study and teach your word, and we can see things that um, we might miss with a cursory reading of the text. And yet we thank you that we can also just open up our Bible and read it together and look at it together and find wisdom and insight to apply to our lives. And so I thank you for everybody that's present here, their willingness to get up a little earlier on a Sunday morning to join us as we study your word together. And I ask that you would bear fruit through the time that we share in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Mark 14, we're going to pick up in verse 32. So let me read, I'll read 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Man, just reading that, I'm like, there's so much here for us to talk about. Uh, has anybody been to Israel? You guys have? So the Garden of Gethsemane is kind of across the Kidron Valley, right, from the Temple Mount. Is that correct? Did you get to see it? No. Yeah. And it's like a little, it's like a, on a little mountain, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting imagery because there's this um, passage in Ezekiel, I think it's like chapter 10 or 11, where the Spirit of God leaves the temple and goes out across the valley to basically the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's really a judgment on Israel because they continue doing all the temple things, but God's not in it with them. The Spirit has left. And I think it's kind of prophetic about this imagery where Jesus was in the temple. Remember, he cast out the money changers, and then he now crosses to the Valley of Gethsemane, or I'm sorry, across the valley to Gethsemane, and um, that will sort of initiate the process of the events surrounding his crucifixion and resurrection. And somebody correct me, isn't, isn't it also Gethsemane where he ascends? Let's look at Matthew 28 real quick. The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, which is the same, right? Isn't, isn't the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives? Okay, well, this is why if I had studied, I would have, I would have an answer for you. Um, I guess I don't know that off the top of my head. <clears throat> Verse 32, sit here while I pray. Yeah, it's correct according to the notes of the study Bible. It is? Okay, so the Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. 
right. So that's kind of interesting because in that Ezekiel passage, as far as we, as far as I know, the spirit in, in this prophecy, the spirit never again enters the temple, and I think that signifies that the temple is no longer the means by which the people of God have a relationship with God. Right? It now happens by virtue of the spirit indwelling the people of God. Um, man, the Bible is so beautifully interconnected. It's, it's really an incredible book. Has anybody seen this picture of, um, it's kind of this cool artwork. It almost looks like a rainbow, and it's got all the pa- all, every chapter of the Bible laid out on the bottom with all the interconnected references. Um, it's, it, I actually have a copy on my laptop. If you want to see after class, I can show it to you. It's really incredible. There's no book in all of human history that's anything like that that is so self-referential and so consistent in the, sorry, self-referential and so consistent, internally consistent in the way that it references itself. It's incredible. All right, so Jesus says, sit here while I pray. Um, He doesn't give them the command to pray, at least not the wider group of the disciples. Do you think it's kind of implied? He doesn't tell them to sleep. Yeah, he, that's a little bit later when he says to uh, Peter, James, and John, right? Um, but to the, to the rest of the disciples, he, he just says, sit here and pray. Now, if you are a, a uh, young Jewish man following a rabbi, what do you do when you follow him? Yeah, you do what he does, right? You mimic him. So if Jesus is going over there to pray, even without the command to pray, I think the implication is uh, <clears throat> you should also pray, even if you're not with me. Um, so then he takes Peter, James, and John, which are kind of his inner circle. Where else did we see the three of them together? Transfiguration. Yep, at the transfiguration. So they've had a little bit of kind of a sneak peek into the divinity of Jesus uh, in a little bit more... Um, uh, emphatic way than maybe the rest of the disciples. <clears throat> okay, and, and, it, and verse uh, 33 says uh, that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Why is he distressed and troubled? It's an obvious answer. Yeah, he knows that the hour has now come, right, for his betrayal, his arrest, his um, false accusations at this trial and ultimately his crucifixion. Um, So does anybody know what impassibility means? God in his nature is impassible. Anybody know, can anybody define that term? So it means that God does not feel passion. Now, by passion, we're not referring to merely feelings. We're using kind of an older definition of the word passion. God is not troubled or distressed in his nature. If you are all-powerful and you know all things, what could possibly trouble you or what information could you receive that you wouldn't already know? There's nothing, right? So God's impassibility is connected to his unchangeableness, Um, He doesn't change. So this is a very interesting picture because we're getting a look at Christ, the second person of the Godhead, who is a member of the Trinity, 
and in his true human nature, his soul is troubled. Um, does this mean that he has any sort of doubt about the goodness of his father or the plan that's in place? No, it just means that he's a real human. I mean, he has real human experiences. Um, you know, if you're not troubled by your traumatic death that looks like this, then you we'd probably say something's wrong with you. You might be borderline sociopathic or something like that. So uh, Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. And it's not merely his crucifixion. That's bad. But it's more that he is going to bear the wrath of God for human sin. Um, that would be, I would say, the most troubling aspect of what lies before him. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Anybody ever felt like their soul was troubled even to the point of death? I've, I've had a troubled soul. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say to the point of death. That's pretty extreme. This, this might be a kind of unique experience for Jesus, the Son of God, as he looks to bearing the weight of man's sin. Um, but I find some comfort in knowing that when my soul is troubled, I can cry out to a Savior who has experienced that himself. Not that God needs to experience anything in order for him to relate to us, because he knows all things. But there's some comfort in reaching out to Christ the Savior, who had a true human experience, like, like we have had. Anybody have thoughts on any of that? All right, so he gives them the command, watch. Uh, so he gives to Peter, James, and John the command, watch. Um, do you think he means watch the events that are taking place in this current moment? Or do you think he means, like, be watchful in prayer before God? Or, or do you think we don't have enough information to know? Yeah, watchful. be watchful in prayer before God. I think I would be more... more um, prone to lean that route. I mean, the, the, let me put it in these terms. The real danger here for these men is not that it, at some point in the coming hours, men will come with swords. The real danger for these men is the spiritual danger. Um, so I, I think Jesus is, is encouraging them. What, whatever the case may be, he's, he's definitely uh, giving them a command to be ready. Right, And what do they end up doing? They fall asleep. Again, if I'd had an opportunity to study, I would know exactly what time this is. But uh, it's at some point in here, I, I think um, one of the Gospels gives us an actual time marker. This is sometime in the middle of the night. Um, midnight, maybe later? Does anybody know? Okay, well, it's, it's late, so they end up doing probably what you and I would, would do, which is fall asleep. Um, I mean, I will just confess to you that 
not infrequently when I go to try and spend extended times in prayer, you know what ends up happening? <laughs> I doze off, right? Which is actually something a little bit beautiful about that because um, it means that there's some rest involved. Like sometimes when I'm struggling to fall asleep at night, I have this problem where my mind just like won't shut up and it just keeps going. And when I direct my thinking to prayer, um, sleep usually comes fairly quickly after that because I'm not stressing up out about all the other things. But I think in this case, you're looking at a, a kind of disappointing outcome. Um, these are guys who are supposed to have Jesus' back and instead they end up napping. Um, that's a bummer. So verse 35, Jesus goes a little bit further and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Verse 36, and Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Wow. So was it possible for the Father to do things differently? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So that brings us to a profound theological insight that of all the possible ways in which God could have orchestrated creation, brought about man's salvation, um, spared his son, this is the one that he chose. And maybe I overstated that. Maybe there's not any other way that God could have secured our salvation but certainly, God could have made the decision to not put his son through this. And uh, what do we learn about what is in the heart of God himself? Can I say something? Yeah. But I think in the, in the human history from the beginning, you know, um, God is kind of like hinting, giving us hint that this is, this is my 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 plan in the future because in the old testament remember they get kept sacrificing the animals i mean yeah pure animal i mean clean and so i can, i think god is like hinting like in the future this is going to happen but it will be my son you know i, I mean, it's just no, no 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 that's really good so that that brings us to another thing is like God doesn't change his mind, right? So connected to impassibility, God is unchanging. So we sort of get this weird conundrum where the plan was already at work. It was already in motion. So at this point, could God have done something differently? Um, I mean, God just doesn't change his mind, right? Yeah. Um, so this is a... This is a passage that you could probably spend a lot of time theologically reflecting on, and it would stretch you quite a bit. Uh, I think where I want to maybe focus our attention <clears throat> is on this truth that this is God's will. This is the decision that he has made. And uh, Jesus prays this prayer because he's in anguish anticipating what will come in the hours ahead. And yet this is God's will. So at one point, um, I, I was what I would call myself, I would have called myself a seven-point Calvinist. <laughs> and one of those points 
is just this concept that's, that says this is the best of all possible worlds. That of all the things God could have done in creation, this is the best one. This is the one that most proclaims his glory, most showcases his, uh, his justice, his love, his mercy, his grace. It, it is the, the plan of creation that most glorifies him. And in the end, Jesus is going to surrender himself over to the will of the Father in that, knowing that, yeah, Jesus says all things are possible for you, and yet Jesus also trusts the will of the Father in this. As we pray to love, not only this, you lay down your life for your friends. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is the ultimate display of love right here. Um, and and in, a, in a Trinitarian fashion, we can look at that from two different angles because we can look at it from Christ who willingly lays down his life and we can look at it from the Father who willingly surrenders his son, right? Um, I mean, I would give my life before I would give the life of my own son. Um, so, man, just no, no matter what angle you look at it from, it shows the... The incredible love of God. Question. Yes. <laughs> so it, back to Genesis, you know, before God created man, for sure he knew already that man will become rebellious. Yes. So, it, yeah, from eternity it's already planned that this thing will happen. Yeah, absolutely. We get that in Ephesians chapter 1. We actually looked at it in 1 Peter chapter 1 back in the first couple of verses. <clears throat> you also have that verse in, is it Revelation 13, that says that the, the, the names of all, everyone whose name was written in the book of the life of the Lamb from before the foundation of the world were saved. They didn't give themselves over to the beast. So, I mean, this is just everywhere throughout Scripture. Yeah. Yes. So verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will. Um, take a lesson in prayer from Jesus in that text. I think a lot of times when we come to God, we bring our supplication, we bring our requests, and Scripture invites us to do that in Philippians 4. Um, but... At the end of our prayer, not that we need to like say this every time that we pray, but I think I think the true goal of prayer is not to uh, bring God into conformity with our will, but after we have made our requests known, to surrender over our will to conformity to His will. Does that make sense? Not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus then takes a little break from his prayer. Verse 37, he comes and he finds him sleeping. Ever been disappointed by your close friends? Jesus is going to go through that, a few rounds of that, over the next few hours. Um, he comes back and he finds them sleeping. And... Uh, he says, "Could you, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Verse 37. So whether they were supposed to be watchful in prayer or watching his back in the physical world, they failed him in that. 
verse 38, now we do, I guess, get, get this command, watch and pray. So I guess my prior assumption that the watch was not meant to be only, um, you know, be watchful in the garden, but be watchful in prayer. I think there it becomes explicit. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And there's, again, support for what I was saying earlier, that the real danger that they're in is not the the temple guards that are going to come and potentially capture them, but that the temptation that they would abandon Jesus, fall into sin, deny him, that's the greater problem that they're facing. And then he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Ooh, man, that makes me think of my sermon, but I'll save that information for you. Uh, anybody ever experienced that? Yep. Where you're like, man, God, truly, I can, I can say I desire this, and yet in my flesh, I come up short in practice. I think God gives us actually a lot of credit for our willingness. Um, thank God for that. Because our, our, our actual performance is often pathetic. Later when Jesus comes back to have a conversation with Peter after the resurrection and he has this, this conversation with Peter that goes through three rounds, right? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. There's, a, there's kind of an interesting uh, thing there in the Greek where the first two times Jesus asks him that question, he uses the word, um, yeah, agape, right? Uh, I, th- I think it's agape the first two times and then phileo the last time. And so Jesus is kind of saying, do you love me with this kind of idealistic love? And Peter's like, yes. And then Jesus asks him again, which would be disappointing. You would feel like, well, didn't you believe me the first time? And then the third time he asks, he used the phileo word, which still means love, but it's, it's maybe not quite as ideal. It's a little bit more brotherly love. And my, my, my dad in a sermon mentions that like, he wonders if it's kind of like, Peter, do you even like me? Right, and uh, that—that's enough, right? When 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 Peter says, "Yes, Lord, I I phileo you, I love you," with that kind of brotherly love, he is commissioned to go and minister to the sheep of Jesus. Um, so praise God that the goal is for our flesh to also be willing, but God in His mercy will work with us when it's only our spirit and our flesh is weak. Praise God for that. And thank God for Jesus, who has both a willing spirit and a willing flesh, who does in our place what we could never do on our own. Verse 39, it says Jesus went away and he prayed, saying the same words. That's kind of interesting. Have you ever felt like your prayer life is kind of dull and full of the same words? Maybe there's an argument to be made here that that's, that's okay. Uh, it's kind of interesting, too, in connection with where Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles in the Sermon on the Mount, who, you know, they just repeat these phrases. Uh, why, if Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Mount, don't just be repetitive in your prayer, and then he can go and pray the same words, why is that acceptable? Yeah, 
if you mean the words when you say them, do you think God's going to turn you away? Yeah, that, that's what matters. So if these Gentiles are chanting these prayers that are just memorized and routine and meaningless in their mind and their heart, then it's meaningless in the presence of God. But you can, you can be very sincere in a, in a repetitive prayer, and that's acceptable before God. Um, sometimes, depending on the situation that you're working through, it's tough to find the words that you need to pray. And so God is gracious, and he'll accept what little offering we can bring. So after a second round of praying, verse 40, he comes and he finds them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Uh, I, I see a lot of the human experience just in these verses. Um, ever been trying to pray and then you fall asleep and you wake up and you're like, I'll do better. I'll, I'll pray harder this time around. And then you drift off again. Um, I've, I've made a uh, model for myself. It's my own kind of interpretation of scripture. But uh, Matthew says Jesus prayed three times for that thing to be taken away. And then he stopped. And then I see Paul with this thing. He prayed three times for the, blood, this, the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And that's kind of where I stop. You know what I mean? Like, I really don't want, you know, if I'm praying for something, I'll pray three times, and then I figure it's God's will. Right? And, but that's just my own model based on Scripture. Yeah, and I think there's uh, value in that because I think we can, like, obsess over things, and we can get to the point where we... <laughs> We are almost like trying to badger God into our will. But then, right, but then on the other hand, you have the, the parable of the persistent widow who knocks till she gets the justice that she wants. And then conversely, you have, well, I don't have enough faith. I'm not asking in faith. Right. I'm just, to me, it's just like easy to just go, oh, three times because it's your heart. Yeah. And then trust God. <laughs> yeah. Not that I don't trust him all the way, but. Sure. Really sure. Uh, and then on the other hand, like I know a woman who she became a believer in college and she spent 20 years praying for her parents. And after 20 years, they became believers. Now, maybe that would have happened if she'd done it three times and then waited 20 years. Who knows? But you certainly can't fault her for her persistent like love for her parents in bringing them before the Lord. And I'm distinguishing that, not praying for salvation for people and stuff, but from like things I don't Right, right. Yeah. That seemed to be going that way. Yeah. That's good. That's good. So verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Uh, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Somebody willing to kind of give some explanation of this term son of man what does this mean I know I know it definitely was a title used along the Old Testament too and that's why every time Christ said son of man in the gospels the Pharisees and such didn't like it so of course the next one it's uh, him saying you know he's he's the son of man who was described in many of the books like what it was like Ezekiel and stuff which describes the Messiah. Yeah. Um, but of course, it also talks about the Son of Man in non-Messianic terms, just being a son of 
Yeah, that's good. So, so as human, of course, it's humanity. Yes, amen. So Jesus is claiming for himself this prophetic Old Testament title that is connected to the Messiah. Uh, and it's D Daniel as well, right, that has the quote, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So, I th and I think Ezekiel, I think Isaiah even uses the Son of Man a little bit. So, but, but this is interesting because you have this really cool concept here where Adam is called what? The Son of God. Adam is called the Son of God in the genealogies uh, of, of Jesus. So you have this cool thing, God kind of, if you'll, if you'll go along with an analogy, I don't mean this literally, God kind of gives birth to mankind in Adam, and then from Adam, the son of God, comes Jesus, who is God, but is also the son of man. So there's just a cool, there's like a lot of beauty and theology wrapped up in that term. And it does show that he's truly man, and yet he's also the true son of God. Because he fills what he fulfills what Adam failed to do. <clears throat> All right, verse forty-two. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's let's read uh, forty through three through uh, fifty. And immediately, while he was still speaking, there's that word immediately again. Mark is obsessed with it. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Jesus had already told the uh, disciples that one of them would betray him in the upper room. This is totally not part of the text, but I, I can't help but wonder if you know, they were like exchanging money. Dang, I thought it was going to be Peter. No, it was you, Judas. And they're losing bets. This is a troubling scene, though. Because Judas, who was supposedly a faithful follower of Christ, betrays his, his, his friend and his rabbi. And he does so in the most... Uh, I mean, almost tender of ways, right, with a kiss. And this term rabbi, which has embedded in it endearment. And they come, this crowd that comes to arrest Jesus comes with swords and clubs. Why? Why would they, knowing what you know about Jesus and the way that he conducted himself, why would they come with swords and clubs? Why do you think? I think because in their mind, this this. This man has performed a lot of miracles, so he can, he can, you know, he can do it. He can do the reverse and, and yeah. try and hurt them. 
And I think that's a great answer. The The problem with it, though, is that uh, would clubs and swords accomplish anything against a man who can do miracles? Like at one point, the disciples say, Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on this town over here that's rejected you? Jesus could have done that, right? A club and a sword is not going to do much against a man who can, you know, with a word, destroy your very flesh. I think it has to do with the, the, the socio-political background of what the Jews thought the Messiah would actually be. So they were not expecting the Son of God. They were expecting a David-like king. And David was a man of bloodshed. In fact, God even says, David, I'm not going to authorize you to build the temple because you have too much blood on your hands. And so I think most of the Jews were thinking, if this guy is actually a Messiah then what he will do is he will raise up an army. And so it'll be necessary to capture him with clubs and swords. Uh, it might also just be that scripture foresees these as being violent men. You know, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Psalms, then there's a lot of discussion in the Psalms about how violent men have risen against me. So they just have violence in their heart. I mean, they're ultimately going to crucify him. Is there anything more violent than that? Mark calls Judas. They came out with clubs and asked to fulfill the scriptures. Yeah, so that's a huge part of it too, right? Literally, Jesus even says in verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled. I think that probably is a reference to Psalms. Do you have any other scriptures that come to mind? Take a look, but I, I just thought about the disciples, right? Uh, they would not let the master go without a fight, and one of them did get uh, really upset, right? So that would make sense also to just come and be, uh, um, be uh, making them afraid so they wouldn't do anything. You just come with enough people, with enough clubs, you know, maybe they'll just let it go kind of thing. So which verse was that again? 49. 49. Well, so there is a reference to Isaiah 53, 7 and 9, and 12. Okay, so yeah, that would be, that makes sense. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Um. If, if somebody has that, you want to read it for us? What? It was 53. So Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, talking about Jesus. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. 
because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And then verse 12 was referenced as well. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So I, I think I had studied that in the past, and uh, I think the reference is to verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and the idea is that he's not going to go through a fair trial where you know, things go as, as, you know, due process, everything is going to get done at night and without really following the law. I think that's what's happening here. That's good. I think verse, verse 12, though, is he was counted among the rebels, and then it says, you know, he came out to me like a criminal. Right. That's how you go capture a criminal. With it, it's, it, it is interesting here, though. I don't think that we need to understand uh, that narrowly. Uh, it's inter- what I'm getting at is it's interesting that when it says, and the scriptures were, fu- were fulfilled, there are times where it says specifically like, you know, this verse, or, or it'll, it'll say like it says in Isaiah, like it's written in the prophet Isaiah. Other times it's just kind of open-ended like that. I mean, Psalm 59 Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. Uh, It goes on to say, Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. So I, I um, you know, there there might be multiple places where s- yeah. scripture foreshadowed Christ in this. I think verse forty nine is it's really making an emphasis that's slightly different from what we're discussing. It says, "I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled." So I, I think the idea is that you know you had plenty of other opportunity to seize me, but it was not the hour. And then he says in verse 41, the, the hour has come. So that's right now. It wasn't then where you could have done it so easily. It's right. right now. And that's because that's the time that God had predicted. And, yeah. and, and another it, thing to look at after it says the scripture must be filled. Then the, the disciples left. Right. So and that could be part of it too. You hit the shepherd and the sheep will yep. scatter. Yep. Sheep will scatter. Yep. Totally. Uh, and David has psalms about that as well, where he says, my friends have abandoned me. I don't, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. So, what, what psalm were you reading? Uh, that, oh man, I just let it go. 50, 59. Uh, 59, yeah. And I think it's somewhere right in there where he, he even says, you know, my, my friends who used to be with me have abandoned me. So... I mean, probably all of these things in some way were sort of foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Um, That would be an interesting study. You could probably write a doctoral dissertation on that. So Mark, uh, back in verse 44, he doesn't even use Judas's name at this point. He just calls him the betrayer. And he had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. This is a, probably a little unfamiliar to us, but you're dealing with a time in history where there were no photographs of people. And this is dark. The best thing that you have are torches, if you even have that. Probably Jesus and his disciples were, were walking around by just the natural light. So 
you know, we have got a lot of light pollution in the evening. It's not hard to see. We've got lights all around us. But you've got these two things going on that, that it's possible a lot of the people who are showing up to arrest Jesus have never seen him before. And then also that the light is dim. It's dark. So if these guys are crowded together, it would be tough from 10 yards away to say that's the guy. So Judas approaches and gets close enough to Christ to kiss him. And he gives the command, seize him and lead him away under guard. So verse 40, 45, when Judas came, he went up to him at once, doesn't waste any time, and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And that's when the guards then rush in. They seize Jesus. And this must have been in the mind of the disciples the moment when they thought the, the, the insurrection, the rebellion would begin. So to defend their rabbi, somebody pulls out a sword uh, I forget. Does one of the other gospels say who is it, who it is? Is it Peter? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The guy's name is Malcolm. Okay. Malachi, yeah, which means he doesn't hear well. Which oh, yeah. is so ironic. Oh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> then just puts it back at right. He hears just fine. Yeah. So it would be Peter, of course, right? Because Peter is the he's yeah the impulsive one, and and he's already said Jesus like I'm ready to die for you. So he, he probably thinks this is the moment. Um, and, and we do know from one of the other Gospels that Jesus, as gracious as he is, doesn't leave this man to suffer. He, he takes the ear and he restores the man back to full health. Uh, I don't know why Mark doesn't choose to record Peter's name. Maybe because he's already given Peter enough of a hard time throughout his Gospel. He decides to let him off easy on this one. And the bottom it says in Psalm. 41.9, even my own familiar friend whom I trusted who ate my bread. Looked at That's the one I was thinking of. Thank you. Psalm 41.9. Thank you. Uh, verse 48, Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, there, there has been absolutely nothing in the life of Jesus to show that this kind of treatment of him is necessary. He has been a man of integrity and peace. He's said some biting things, but in his actions, he's essentially only really blessed people. And why, verse 49, he accuses them of this behavior. Day after day I was in you, with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Why, why did they not seize him in the temple? Say that again. They're afraid of the mob. Afraid of the mob is a huge one. They don't have enough evidence. Plus, it's not his hour. Yeah. He slips through their minutes. Yeah. So there's se there's several reasons, right? They're they're afraid of the mob. Mark has actually even said that. I remember that when we looked at that verse, I said keep this in mind, but I don't remember it off the top of my head. Even Judas, uh, when he came and said, you know, what would you give me? They said we have to do it by night when things will not get into a, a riot or something. Yes. Yes. So that's a big one. The other one is they're going to put him on trial. It's a sham trial, but the Jews couldn't just ex execute people. So they needed to be able to do this thing under the cover of the night when most people would be sleeping so that by the next morning when people began to wake up, the, the word could spread, yes, they've convicted Jesus, but all of the witnesses are going to be false witnesses. So they need as small a crew as they can to observe because the trial is going to be a sham. So that's another part of it. And then, of course, that, you know, there, there was a particular 
in the in the mind and the plan of God, there was a particular time, and that corresponded with the Day of Atonement. And reading through this, I find it interesting because they're trying to get two witnesses, they can't get them, and then Jesus basically volunteers himself, right, and commits the thing in front of everybody so they could all hear it. Yeah, because then that convicts them. Yeah, all of the witnesses that come forward, can't they don't. Agree. Yeah, and and they don't present good evidence. And, and so, yeah, you're right. Jesus essentially gives himself over by quoting that passage from Daniel. There, there is another interesting facet of this encounter. So that's in John 18. Um, so they, they answer to him, So who are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You can picture this mob, you know, all those clubs, and they come and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, I am he, and they all fall back. Like, it's crazy. Can you imagine that? So it's, it's just insane. So those little pieces throughout the story from the different gospel accounts confirm what Jesus says to Pilate. Pilate says, don't you understand? I have the authority to kill you. And Jesus says, no, you don't have the authority to kill me. I lay my life down. So we've got pictures of him when he upsets uh, people in Nazareth and they attempt to throw him off a cliff. The text tells us he just walks right through the crowd. Uh, here we're told that the crowd that, that comes with swords and clubs, they fall back. He could have walked away if he'd wanted. At the trial, there, there probably wouldn't have been sufficient evidence if he hadn't outed himself. So we can see the definite plan of God and we can see the commitment of Christ to that plan because if he'd wanted to walk away from this, he could have. Yeah, um, there was one thing when he, when he was talking to Pilate about that, there was this one thing that of course people, a lot of, a lot of prisoners were probably talking to Pilate who were about to be put to death were very fearful, begging for their lives and, oh, yeah. and Pilate had a lot, of course could have a lot of power over that, feeling the pride and such, um, that he could be over that, but then he was Christ showing no fear, but instead exercising his authority over Pilate. Yeah. Big contrast. That, that is. That's a cool picture because you would imagine, yes, most criminals, if they got an audience with Pilate, would have been groveling at his feet. And how intimidating would it be to be talking with Jesus, who is absolutely fearless, so bold as to say something like, in a word, I could have ten legions of angels here to defend me. Well, I'm just supposed to get through verse 52. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So this is John, right? I'm pretty sure this is John. Um, I have no idea why Mark chooses to record this little bit of information here. <laughs> my, my study Bible um, says that... Uh, left linen cloth. This incident is recorded only in Mark's gospel, leading many commentaries to think that it was Mark himself. The author um, put out of modesty did not include his own name. But okay. it, it's a weird passage. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, some, some, I mean, something I heard about it, it could resemble the fact, of course, the cloth being removed, um, such as our vulnerability, like being, you know, when Adam and Eve were naked before God, God put a 
um, cloth, put cloth on around them and covered them and showing that's his vulnerability, which should symbolize, of course, our vulnerability before. Um, and then, of course, later Christ makes himself vulnerable to sin, thus clothing us. Mm. So this yeah, is like before, this is before the crucifixion, and then of course after the crucifixion and resurrection. Now we have trust in him; we can be clothed in his righteousness. So. That's cool. I like it. Yeah, I like that. You, when you leave Christ, when you run away, you're naked before God. You have no no ark. Yeah. To save you from the wrath to come. Yeah. From Christ. Yeah. I, I, so I have a friend who basically says, well, if the Bible doesn't say that, you can't, you can't say that. And, uh, and I, I respect that, that rigid, faithful approach to scripture, but there are some bits of imagery like that, whether that's what the author intended or not, we, we could probably say no. Um, I think there's a simpler reading, which is just connecting verse 50 to 51 and 52, right? Here's an example of what it looked like when they fled. Um, but that, I think that's a beautiful thing to reflect on, right? Like I, that, that imagery is there. And I think it's also fair. I don't think it's unbiblical. I think it's something that is meaningful to reflect on. Um, and we know from some of the ways in which like the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament authors that they're drawing that kind of imagery out of the text in different places. So we obviously don't have their same kind of authority, but I, I think that the the spirit can use that imagery to minister to us. Yeah, I mean, about, about what the friend was talking about, I mean, I, I can maybe just say that Paul, Paul drew so much stuff out of the scriptures that wasn't explicitly said, but then Paul explained and elaborated on in his epistles and such. Yeah. So, I mean, Paul said so many things that weren't supposed to be said in the Bible, but just from what the knowledge the spirit gave him. Yeah. He, he's, Elaborate yes, and I'm fascinated by that. The difference, though, is that Paul was inspired by the Spirit, and there's other letters of Paul that we don't have because they weren't inspired by the Spirit. So, um, I, I love it. I think it's a beautiful picture. I'm glad you you mentioned that. Um, and uh, does it does anybody know? Just because again, I didn't have a chance to prepare for this. Forgive me. Why do we think this is John? If it, because your study Bible said it's only recorded here. Yeah. Um, this hint is only recorded in Mark's gospel. Mm. But there are no cross references. Okay, so may, maybe it is. Maybe it is Mark sort of confessing his own abandonment of Christ. Well, maybe he didn't know who he was, so he was a guy. <laughs> hey. that? That's also true. He doesn't use Peter's name either for the cutting off of the sword, yeah. or cutting off the ear, so I don't know. But but I think that what you have here is is Mark just saying, yeah. and here's an example of what that looked like, you know, that they were terrified enough to run off essentially in their, in their skivvies, you know. Um... That imagery reminds me of like Joseph running and his tunic being held by the oh, yeah. for quiet. But in that image, he's fleeing sin. This one, it seems like they're being sinful and running. Yes. And denying Christ. Yes. Yes. And maybe that brings up another thing about imagery is like not all imagery is connected. You know, sometimes you get a similar kind of thing, but it's it actually has a different meaning. Um, or the uh, the imagery of. Uh, you know, on judgment, not if you're in the field, they'll run back and get your your clothes. Yeah. 
So that just brings us back to like a fundamental principle is like the best way to interpret a passage is through its immediate context. But I do think it's, it, it is interesting for us to think, well, where else do we see this kind of imagery? Um, certainly the one where they're clothed in the garden is a good one. And to stand naked before God is a terrifying thing, apart from the righteousness of Christ. He seems to be a bit more courageous that, than most of them in verse 50, though, right? We don't really, we cannot see just the end, like, look at him, what he did. Well, they all fled, and he was trying to follow Jesus a little bit more than the others, right? And then at the end, he said, okay, there's nothing I can do, I'm gone. Yeah. But he was more courageous than most of them. As, as, they, as they walk off towards the temple with Christ bound, this man is following behind until somebody notices, and then they come after him. Yeah, true. Well, we'll have to stop there. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of Christ, that he surrendered himself to your will. And I thank you that this was a plan established before the foundation of the world because you love us. I thank you that this is the best of all possible worlds, the, the world that most displays your glory. We give you praise for that. I ask that we would be watchful in prayer, that we might not fall into temptation. I ask that uh, when the moment of our own testing comes and we are exposed as being associated with Christ, that we would stand firm in that, um, that we would embrace the shame of the cross like our Lord and Savior did, and that we would profess Christ with a wholehearted commitment to following him. And we thank you for where this story is headed, to the cross, where Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, will atone for our sins. We give you praise for your great mercy in that act of redemption. Um, I ask that you would help us walk worthy of this grace that we have received in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.